In our house, we have a, step, uh, a set of steep uh, wooden stairs that lead down into our basement. And there's a door at the top of these stairs that we keep closed all the time because we have young kids in the house that we don't want to fall down uh, the steps. And, and a little more than a year ago, I was coming upstairs from doing something in the basement, and I wasn't really paying attention, and I accidentally left this door open. And maybe two or three minutes later, I kind of looked back behind me at the door from across the room, and I saw my daughter, Emma, who at that time had just learned to crawl. I think maybe she'd been crawling for two or three or four weeks. She was kind of at the edge of the top of the stairs, peeking down uh, curiously. And my heart leaped within my chest, and I raced as fast as I could across the room. It felt like I was running through sludge. I, I just couldn't get there fast enough. And, and finally, I arrived. I scooped her up, and she was fine. And I was too, just in case you were wondering. No, no hospitalization was uh, necessary for her dad. But uh, later that night, as I went uh, to bed, and, and for the next several days, there were two words that absolutely haunted me. And they were the words, what if? What if I hadn't gotten there in time? I mean, what if she had fallen down those stairs? And what if... Sometime in the future, I should do that same dumb thing again. What if? What if? What if? And you know what's interesting? Almost all the fears that we have in life begin with those same two words. What if? Let me give you a few examples. Maybe you'll relate to one or two or more of these. What if I left the oven on this morning? What if I can't get that report in tomorrow morning? What if someone notices that my socks don't match? What if the test results come back positive? What if there's been an accident? What if we can't pay this bill? What if someone finds out? What if my daughter struggles with these things her entire life? What if what he said about me is true? What if they've been cheating on me? What if I'm next? What if it's cancer? What if this feeling never goes away? What if no one listens? What if I end up all alone? This morning, I want to ask you, as you think about your life, what are your what ifs? What are those things in your life that occasionally or, or maybe often haunt you? Well, Psalm 46 has been called a psalm of holy confidence. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that each one of us in this room would be able to take some of that holy confidence from this psalm this morning. Because Psalm 46 answers the, it actually, it offers an answer to every what if we might ever have had and every what if we possibly could have. And it's a holy confidence that is cemented in the firm and steady truth that God is in charge. That no matter what what if we face, that God at all times is always in charge of everything. Now this psalm is broken down very simply into three sections. And I want to just let you know what each section is basically about. In the first section, we are told that we shouldn't fear. 
In the second section, we're told why it is that we shouldn't fear. And in the third section, we're told how to keep from fear. So we have the, the that, we have the why, and we have the how. And the first section is going to begin with an example of fear itself. So let's go back and take a look at verses 1 through 3. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, it's difficult to imagine more dire circumstances than the ones that are presented in this little section of the psalm. There's nothing in the world that's more heavy, more certain, more dependable in all the earth than the mountains are. There's nothing that has stood the test of time and endured the pressures and the forces of nature like the Alps or like the great Rockies or the Himalayas. And yet what you've got in this image is you've got the mountain ranges of earth being torn up from their foundations and thrown violently into the heart of the sea where they crash with this thunderous splash. And then what we have in a sort of reversal of the image, you have all the waters of the oceans roaring and and foaming so ferociously that they rise up and they cause all of the mountains to tremble as they, they crash up into them. Now, I'm not proud to say this, but I've watched a lot of Hollywood disaster movies in my day, and I've seen a lot of things. A few years ago, I saw some aliens attack the White House. And uh, I've seen volcanoes in San Francisco. I've seen it all. Meteors, I've seen them hit the Atlantic Ocean several times in several different films. But you know what I haven't seen? Is I have not seen a disaster to the degree of this passage. Because what this passage describes is the total destruction on earth. It is a complete uh, collapse of our world. Now this is put into this Uh, psalm as uh, hyperbole okay so it is an exaggeration it's not meant to be taken literally we will probably not face anything in life that's quite this terrible but we will face terrible things as mary Kay said what mary Kay said is exactly true christians face terrible horrible sometimes inconceivable challenges in life and so this psalm begs the question what are we to do when the times of trouble come what are we to do when the mountains in our lives those people or those things that we felt like would always be there they could always be depended on, that they would always protect us and supply us and see us through in our time of need. Maybe it's our family or our job or our health or our reputation. What are we to do when those things begin to tremble or to crumble or to fall in front of us? And likewise, what are we supposed to do when the seas in our life, those things that we always thought we were protected from, begin to foam and to stir, and to rise up around us and against us. And the ground that we've been standing on that seemed so secure doesn't feel so secure anymore. And what the psalmist says is that when the waters begin to rise and the mountains begin to fall, God is our refuge and our strength, 
a very present help in trouble. And so, in this psalm, when presented before us is the most unimaginable what if we are reminded that God, in all of our what ifs, is still in charge of everything. And what I love about this psalm is that it announces this truth in in two ways. There's sort of two tones that are within the words of uh, of, of this psalm. It, It first announces this truth like a joyful headline on a newspaper, that this is meant to be proclaimed and and rejoiced in, and and yet it also applies these truths uh, tenderly and gently like uh, medicine on an aching wound. The psalmist says, even if all of nature crumbles around us, even if the worst thing happens, God is there to protect and uphold his people. And therefore, the psalmist says, we will not fear. Now, the psalm I mentioned is divided into three parts. And one thing that you'll notice is that there's a very small word there. It's, it's the word selah. And the selah is written into many of the psalms. What uh, we believe it is is that it's, it's a musical term that is a break. It's meant to be a pause. And it was a, a pause in part for the singers or the mu- musicians who would sing and, and play the music to these songs so that they could take a breath. Uh, maybe sometimes they would stop and, and retune their instruments. But for the people who were not leading the singing, for those who were not the musicians, it, it would serve as a, a point of reflection. And the people were meant to stop and to soak in what it was that had been promoted and, and talked. And, and the psalm invites us to do that throughout. We ought to stop and pause and remember that as the waters rise and the mountains fall, God is our refuge and our strength. That he is present. He is with us. And therefore, we need not be afraid. So the first part of this psalm tells us that we shouldn't fear. The second part of the psalm tells us why we shouldn't fear. Let's look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations raise, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so what you have here is in this setting where the earth is absolutely giving away, right? You've got this terrible shaking and crumbling happening, and yet within all of this pictured here, firm and secure stands the city of Jerusalem. This, this part of the psalm describes that city, Now, the city of Jerusalem in Old Testament times was such a unique and important place. The reason that it was so uh, unique and important, and this is kind of hard for us to grasp sometimes, but it, it represented the kingdom of God on earth. God decided that he was going to use an actual city, Jerusalem, to be the representation of his kingdom on earth. Now, God's kingdom is is much bigger than a city, 
obviously. It was much bigger than that city at that time. But God established the city of Jerusalem during the rule of David and Solomon to be the visible expression of his kingdom. We cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he put it there to teach us what the kingdom of God was like. And in the city of Jerusalem, the crown jewel of that place was the temple. And and in the temple, the presence of God himself dwelled. God descended, and and that is where he was. And so the people would gather together and joyfully worship him in that place. And and much of the Old Testament describes how they were to do that. There were priests, and there were sacrifices, and and the people would come into uh, God's presence there with joy and with celebration. And so Jerusalem is the city in part, that is described in this psalm. The words of the psalm say that it is the holy habitation of the Most High and that God is in the midst of her. And the result of this, the psalmist says, is that if God is in the middle of this city, if this is his habitation, then that city cannot be moved because who or what could ever come against God's own city? What can touch God? And so the people within the walls of this city are safe because it is his. It belongs to him. And so what you have in here is you have this contrast between these roaring and and, and foaming waters that are outside the city. and, And inside, the psalm says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In this city is is pictured this beautiful, wonderful, refreshing river. Now, in the city of uh, Jerusalem, back in the times of the Old Testament and also today, there is a very important underground spring that's found in the city. And the the spring's important for lots of reasons. It, It was for drinking water. Obviously, it was a supply there, and it was used to irrigate the lands Uh, of the city, but uh, it was incredibly important during times of trouble and at times of war. In those days, when a city was attacked or under siege, the greatest fear that the people within the city might have would be that they would lose access to their water. Because obviously, if they lose access to drinking water, then it's only a few days before all hope is lost and they, they will need to surrender to the enemy forces. But with uh, fresh spring water flowing in, then the people who are in that city can resist indefinitely what, whatever it is that's happening outside. And so picture the image here. You've got uh, uh, this, this situation where outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the waters are rising. And the mountains are tumbling. The psalmist says the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. And yet what you have here is you have the people within this city drinking from these streams of water. They sit by this refreshing river. And not only in the midst of all of this chaos do they enjoy peace and calm and protection but it says they also experience this deep sense of gladness and joy. And so Jerusalem stands in the middle of all of this unharmed as the sovereign stately capital of God's kingdom on earth and as a refuge of hope and peace 
in troubled times for all those who will put their trust in God. You see the image here? Do you see the contrast? Now, it was not always going to be this way for Jerusalem. There was a growing problem, actually, within the city that would get worse and worse as time uh, went by, and that is that the people in the city of, of Jerusalem were very hard-hearted and rebellious, and eventually they would revolt against God. Israel, the, the, the people within the city, began to see the city of Jerusalem and the temple where the presence of God was as kind of a lucky charm, okay? It was almost like a, a rabbit's foot to them. And they thought that despite their rebellious hearts and their uh, behavior, the way they ignored God and abandoned his ways, that the city itself was so important that it would keep them protected from their enemies just because. And, of course, they were wrong. In a terrible moment that's recorded by the prophet Ezekiel, what God does is he removes his presence from the temple and from the city of Jerusalem. And it's not very long afterwards that the city is attacked by the Babylonians and the people are conquered. And that all is part of the tragic plunge of the story of the Old Testament. And so from that point, when God removed his presence from the old city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was no longer the dwelling place of God on earth. Okay, but, but this psalm in part describes when it was, when it used to be. And we are told something in the Bible that is very, very important that relates to all of this. And that is that one day in the future, we haven't gotten there yet, that there will be another city like Jerusalem. We are promised that God, at the end of all time, is going to recreate this world. This world will be free of, of sin. He will perfect it once again. And when he does, the Bible tells us that God will once again dwell with man on earth. And, and we see this in part in the book of Revelation. Uh, the apostle John, God gives him a vision and what John sees is he sees this great city that's coming down out of heaven onto the earth. And it's, it's enormous. And you know, what God, you know what John calls it? It's so interesting. It's called the New Jerusalem. This is the New Jerusalem because it is what was meant to be with the Old Jerusalem. And he describes the city. He says it's enormous. It's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles in a cube. He describes it as exceptionally beautiful. It's radiant like the most rare jewel. In fact, there was a, a song by Paul Simon you might be familiar with about a, a woman who's so rich that she wears diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Some of you would know that song. Well, he describes the city as being like this, that in the foundations of the city, which will eventually be underground when it descends, there's jewels and rubies of every single kind. So valuable and, and rich and wealthy is God that he can just leave them on the foundations like this woman with diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He says that the streets are made of gold. The curse that is on this world now of sin and death is gone. And in this city, there are no more tears. There is no more sadness. There is no more death. And wouldn't you know it, that through the city, there is a river. And it's described in Revelation 22 as being the river of the water of life and that it's clear as crystal. And so the image 
of safety and security and protection and joy that this psalm illustrates is not only what the people of God experienced for a time, for a season, before it all fell apart in the Old Testament, but it's also meant to be a preview of what the people of God will someday experience physically when we reside in the city that God calls New Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. Now, there is an issue for us here today that you may have thought of. The problem is we're not here, right? This isn't around anymore. And we're not here yet. This is still out in the future. We are sort of stuck between two cities, between the old one and the new one. And so we might kind of ask the question, well, what is there for us, right? We don't have one of those cities yet that we can run to for safety and security during our time of trouble. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, it really does have everything to do with us through the lenses of the New Testament. Think about this for just a second. In the Old Testament city of Jerusalem, the people worshiped God at the temple. And they would go to the temple, and there they would find the priests. They would find uh, sacrifices. They would find access and fellowship to God, but they had to come to a place. In the New Testament, we are told that we don't need to go to a place anymore, that we don't need to go to a temple. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself is our temple. That not only that, Jesus himself is our great high priest who makes a way for us to God. He's our perfect sacrifice who has died for all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. It makes us clean and pure before God. We are holy because of his sacrifice. And that Jesus himself is our access to God. We can come to God through Christ anytime, any place that we want because we worship, Christians worship, not at a specific place, but but we can worship wherever we are, because we worship through a person, the person of Christ, and the work that he has already completed and finished for us on the cross. And so what that means for us is something really important when we think about this psalm, and and something really wonderful. It, It means that when Christians gather together to worship God through his son, like we are doing this morning, that because we are God's people, we are an expression, we his people are an expression of his kingdom here on earth, right? I mean, if New York City suddenly empties and all the people go over here, well, well, the buildings of the city are here, that's true, right? That's still a city, but But the people too, the people coming together who are citizens of this place, in a sense, are the city as well. And so the church, God's people, are like a little outpost of the city of God, right? This morning, we are like a little collection of the people of New Jerusalem. Christians, that city that John describes is our city. Our citizenship is there. We are sons and daughters of God, and we are told that Christ has gone ahead of us to make a place for us there. And so in in a very real sense, as we gather together, as we are the people of God, what we're meant to be and to experience is kind of a preview 
it's kind of a little foretaste of what it means to live within the walls of that city. And so we too are invited to experience together the promises that are in this psalm. That though the nations rage, right? We see that around us when we turn on the headlines. Though kingdoms totter around us, though it feels at times like mountains are crashing and seas are forming, that there really is a river whose streams make glad the city, the people of God. And that God, through his presence and his goodness and his love for us, he he provides for us almost a, a water source that refreshes us and it supplies us and it brings us life and joy. And we are meant to come to God together for his guidance and his help and to know and believe, as the psalm says, that the Lord of hosts is with us. And that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Why should we not be afraid? Because we're God's people. And who can touch God? We are citizens of his city. And who can breach those walls? The third piece in this psalm, I think, adds kind of an exclamation point to all of this. And it also actually gets very practical, and it tells us how we're meant to experience these things in normal, everyday life. And and before we read it, I'll just tell you, I'll point them out. The first is this, that we are to behold the works of the Lord. And second of all, we're told to be still and know that he is God. Let's read verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is a wonderful conclusion to this psalm. And we are told here, first of all, that we are to come and behold the works of the Lord. Now, the the psalm moves on uh, for uh, a couple of lines, and it gives a description of what some of God's works are. It says that God is going to make war against his enemies, and he's going to make peace with his friends. First, you have the war. It says how he has brought desolations on the earth. And then we have peace. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And so what you've got here is you've got, you've got two parts of God's character. You've got, on one hand, his justice and his wrath against sin. He is going to make war. And then you have his grace and his mercy and his peace. He alone is the one who is going to fight the war that will end all wars. And he alone is the one who will win the peace that will endure for all times. And so what are we told to do in light of that is we're told to come and to behold his works. And I think that what that means is this, is that we are instructed to intentionally strive to put ourselves in positions and situations in life where we are reminded of all that God has done and all that God is doing and all that God will one day do. 
There's a story in the New Testament that you might be familiar with. It's uh, late one evening, and Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him by boat, and he sits on the shore. And the Bible says that as Jesus is watching his disciples go across uh, the lake, I believe it was Galilee, um, he can see that, that the boat is being beaten by these huge waves and by these fierce winds. And so Jesus uh, does something kind of unexpected. He walks out on the water to be with his uh, disciples. And the disciples, as they are, are battling these forces of nature, they notice that Jesus is coming to them and they think that he must be a ghost. And in fact, they are so afraid, as you or I would be the same if we were in that situation, that they cry out in fear. You, you've got all of these grown men who, who are yelling in the midst of this huge uh, uh, storm. And Jesus calls out to them and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And, and Peter, he has this incredible moment of bravery. He calls out to Jesus and he says, Lord, if it's you, command me and I will come to you on the water. And, and Jesus replies to him, come. And so Peter does. And, and Peter becomes the only person in all of history to ever walk on water besides Jesus. However, his experience is very short-lived. Because Peter, as he walks towards Jesus, he begins to look around and he notices the waves are crashing and he recognizes that the wind is blowing so heavy. He takes his eyes off Jesus, fear creeps into his heart and he begins to sink down into the waves. And of course, what does Jesus do? He does the thing he always does. He reaches down and he rescues him. Now likewise, in the same way, when we stop beholding the works of the Lord, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we set ourselves up in life to sink in our own sea of what-ifs. And that's why it's so important for us. That's why we need so desperately to keep our eyes on Jesus all the time. That's why, fortunately, God gives us this book. He, he gives us the Bible so that we can open it and read about the things that God has done and what he's doing. Thank God that he gives us the gathering of his people here so that we have people who can remind us and sharpen us and help us and encourage us when we're down. That's why he's given us music and songs so that we can sing about God's justice and his grace and his mercy and his love. That's why he gave us baptism so that we can actually see the gospel portrayed in front of us with our eyes so that we don't forget, so we don't take our eyes off of it. That's why he gives us communion so that regularly we can come and remember that it was Jesus' body that was crushed and his blood that was spilled for the payment of our sins. We need to constantly consider all that God has done in creation and redemption, his character, his promises, his grace, his power, and his glory. And hopefully what we find when we do that is that in the middle of all of life's uncertainties, and there are so many of them, as our minds are churning with our problems and our fears and our doubts, that to our anxious thoughts of, look what's happening around me, we can hear God say, come, behold what I have done. 
And that as we do that by the grace of God, our eyes begin to focus and our minds begin to clear and our hearts can do the thing that they so desperately want to do, which is just to rest and to be at peace. We come to God to renew the, 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 the truth, our belief, our dependence on the fact that he really is God and that he really is in charge of everything. And at that moment, when that happens, some of you have tasted a moment like that before. What we taste and enjoy and experience is what the psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. John uh, Wesley, some of you might have heard that name before. He was a pastor, a very famous pastor, famous uh, theologian. He lived during the 18th century. Well, I, I read an account recently that um, when he was 88 years old, um, he died. And he seemed to have uh, an extended period of time where he knew that he was dying and where he was on his, on his deathbed. And, and he took advantage of that. He invited his closest friends and his family to be with him. And uh, he, as he lay in bed, he took each one of them by hand and uh, he said farewell to each one of them. He had an opportunity to, to say goodbye. Uh, soon after that, he became much, much sicker to the point where it was really impossible for him to be understood. And people would try to talk with him, but they couldn't tell what they were saying, what he was saying. But at the very uh, end of his life, he gathered himself together. And with all of the strength that he could muster, he cried as loud as he could these words. He cried, the best of all, God is with us. And then he raised his hand up in the air and he waved it around in triumph. And he said it again, the best of all, God is with us. I think that's what stillness is. I think that's what it means to experience being still and knowing that God is God. It is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It is coming face to face with weakness or with sickness or with trouble or with pain. It is losing the job that we've had for 30 years. It's watching our children rebel it's having to say goodbye to someone that we love. It's hardship. It's loss. It's our worst what-ifs becoming a reality. And yet, in spite of all of it, it's knowing that God is still in charge and that God is with me. And in that moment, in some mysterious way that no one can explain, that some of us have experienced, in that moment, it is more than enough. I think the thing that this entire psalm describes is, is it, it describes what it looks like and what it means to be still when your life is a chaotic mess. That God is still our refuge and our strength. That he is not distant. That he is not detached. That he is not disinterested. But that he is a very present help in trouble so that we will not fear. Even if the earth should give away, stillness is resting our hearts, our 
troubled hearts, our weary hearts on the banks of that river whose crystal streams make glad the city of God. It's finding gladness, joy, hope, comfort. And being still is being able to raise our hand in triumph and declare, as the psalm does at the very end, that the Lord of hosts is with us and that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, as Mary Kay prayed this morning, we just want to acknowledge that it is true that uh, being your children does not mean that we are kept from problems and trouble. But it does mean that you are with us as we face them. And we thank you for that great truth. Thank you for the image that we have of, of your city in strength and stateliness with walls of protection. Thank you for the sense of security that we find in that image. But we know that that is only true because your presence is there. And we thank you that your presence is here with us as well. We thank you that all of the things that this psalm uh, proclaims, we can enjoy and we want to. Help us to be people who behold your works regularly, daily. Help us not to take our eyes off of your son, Jesus, who has helped us, has rescued us, has saved us from our sins. And help us to know what it means to be still, to rest, not in ourselves, but to rest in you. We thank you, Father, that that you are in charge of everything. And we thank you that you are our safety, our security, 